0: You're listening to Founders on Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. This podcast is sponsored
1: by Zoom to You, Australia's on demand courier marketplace. Get your parcels delivered within hours rather than days. Today, we have Mark Tanner from Quilla, who's the co-founder and CEO. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Pleasure to be here. So, congrats on what you've built so far. Quilla's a, a great success in the Australian startup community. You've raised a bit of capital. So, tell us a little bit about how you got started as an entrepreneur. So, I was really
2: quite lucky and I should say just get started. I mean, I think we still feel very early on in our journey. It's nice to still be here, you know, a few years later and still growing, but definitely a long way to go. I mean, I started my journey, I was very lucky. I mean, re- truly one of those funny things where you sort of fell into it by chance. I didn't really, you know, I think throughout high school, I never thought to myself, oh, I'm going to work in tech or, you know, anything sort of along those lines. My dad had his own business and it was, I think, very successful at it, which I think helped. But really for me, like I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so like a lot of people who have no idea what they wanted to do, Oh, become a management consultant, (laughs) and then therefore, by process of elimination, be able to realize all the things I hate doing, and and sort of go from there. Luckily for me, I had a um, an uncle who was involved in the startup, and so when I finished uni, I finished at the halfway mark of the year, rather than the normal end of year time. And so the firm that I'd been sort of working interning with, you know, throughout uni before then, wasn't taking anybody in there. So I had this spare six months to kill. So I did a little bit of work, and then joined my uncle's ebook startup, and then after that was like oh this is a much better path and it was at an interesting time when like ebooks were it was just like, it was like 2008 so just after the iphone had come out and the kindle had come out and ebooks were for a brief moment in time this incredibly hot interesting space and it was fantastic it was a fantastic time and that company grew like crazy for the first year i was there and then it became relatively clear that that core part of our business was being commoditized uh, which was uh, I think a bit of a stressful period. And then but I was lucky enough to sort of from there sort of pivot into a, a job at Google in a very sort of similar capacity. And then, um and I, but I think, you know, and, and while Google was fantastic, fantastic time, I always knew that I wanted to go back to that first startup experience. And I think that I was sort of viewing the Google time as a bit of an education in what a, you know, what a truly excellently run tech business looks like. And so after, you know, about four years there, I, I sort of looked for an excuse to, so I was living in New York at the time to come back to Sydney and uh, and get involved in something early stage. Yeah,
1: awesome. So tell us a little bit about what is Quilla and who uses it and how, how big are you today? Yeah, so we are we're about a team of just shy of forty, um,
2: mainly in Sydney, but you know, team all around the world. We've got a few thousand customers all around the world are doing you know like you know, real revenue and growing properly, which is very nice. And I think we sort of have hit like, I suppose, small business size or trending onto medium business size. And if we're lucky, we'll get to large business size. That's what we do. The core idea behind Quiller is that files suck. Files suck in the age of the internet. Word, PowerPoint, PDF were all these glorious tools when they were first made in the 80s and 90s, but they're just pretty crap online. And our, our focus really in this space is how do you enable... People to communicate with their customers in a modern way, you know, in this age of the web. And so, really, all Quiller is is a way for anyone to create their sales and marketing and sort of external customer-facing documents as web pages. And so, when you do that, there's all this sort of cool stuff you can do. So, not only can it, you know, because it's the web, you can do stuff like it looks great on mobile, and you get analytics. You can know, hey, I sent this proposal out, and they viewed it a few times, and they, you know, they really cared about this section, but they never watched the video or whatever. But you can also do a whole bunch of interesting things such as, you know, pull data in from your CRM to sort of auto-populate the document. If someone views that document or accepts it, you know, sort of you can have like functional buttons so you can like accept, sign, pay all online from any device. That can then go back to your, you know, go back to Salesforce or HubSpot and update the deal value and all that sort of stuff and just like sort of transform the way that most, you know, most B2B businesses are still – Files are only marginally better than pen and paper. And I think sort of really sort of if you look at what's happened in in SaaS and and how SaaS like companies operate with their customers or e-commerce and how that sort of works and just generally the whole consumer experience on the web versus PDF
1: and PowerPoint, it's sort of leagues difference. And so we sort of are very focused on that problem. Yeah, awesome. And you've raised a bit of capital to date and who have you raised the money from and how did you go about doing that?
2: Yeah, sure. So we were lucky early on. So when I got started
1: at Quilla, my co-founder Dylan
2: and I had known each other since we were teenagers. But hilariously, we were both speaking to a mutual friend of ours, Gary Vizonte, at the same time from different angles. And Gary was like, oh, I've got to introduce you to this guy, Dylan. And Dylan sort of telling him, I've got to introduce you to this Google guy. And um, so we both were like, oh, you mean this person I've known for over a decade. But anyway, so luckily enough, after we sort of got started together, Gary sort of, you know, did play matchmaker a little bit. Gary, you know, came along a few months in and Sydney Seed Fund was writing these, you know, these checks for 100K at the time, which was enough for us to sort of decide to take it seriously and start paying ourselves a tiny salary and hiring one engineer, which was like super exciting and sort of really diving into it. Um, We did a little angel round after that, just about half a mil. And then did a proper, which was, you know, just, I think local, you know, some family offices and local angels, and then did a proper round led by Point 0.9 Capital. So Point 0.9 are an awesome fund. They are, I'd say, one of the better SaaS like, seed stage investors in the world. Um, they're based out of Berlin. They were the first money in Zendesk, in Typeform, Unbounce, Algolia, Front, like, there's just a bunch of awesome, awesome companies. A lot of them European but they're very agnostic But they've invested in Happy Co who are sort of San Fran, but kind of also Adelaide and they've invested in Vend out of New Zealand and, and a whole bunch of others. So they just truly all they do is invest in SaaS. And so we were lucky to go along, and meet them. Christoph Jantz, who's the, one of the founders there, Um, Had a phone call with him and uh, having, I will say, having like had a bunch of long conversations with Australian VCs, we weren't raising that much money. It was only one and a half mil. These long drawn out chats with Aussie VCs and then got on a chat with Christoph. and a week later he was like, cool, we want to take the whole round. And you're like, oh, (laughs) okay,
0: (laughs) (laughs) great. Awesome. So Mark, what was it like early on in the business? How did you get that sort of early traction and how did you know when you got that? Yeah. I mean,
2: I think it's, it's the early days are really hard. I, I mean, the first, the early, early days are great. Like the first six months you're working on it cause you have no real expectation. You're not too worried about it and that early on everything's great and new and exciting all these new things that are going on. But I will say, you know, probably the period from nine months to 18 months was pretty rough of just like, oh, I had this really nice high status job at Google that paid well and we <laughs> like my team and we're like, we haven't really figured this out. and. I remember we got to, because we sort of started with the SMB and are sort of slowly trying to move up into the mid-market and we've got a couple of sort of enterprise deals now. But at the start, I remember we, we hit 100 customers and there's this nice Jason Lemkin post about like, you know, if you can get 10 unaffiliated customers, you know, that's impossible. Like how, why would anyone even buy your software? But, if you, but, you know, if you can get 10, you get 100. And if you can get 100, you can get 1,000. And this sort of ongoing thing. And I remember really feeling like we hit 100 customers, like, wow, like we've hit 100 customers. Like people we didn't know know buy our software. Like the market for this is so huge, and a hundred people we've we've really validated it. But then the average, the average like <laughs> the average monthly revenue per account at this stage was like forty eight dollars. So I was like, on the other hand, making <laughs> four thousand eight hundred a month, which is like one you know bad salary. So uh, I think you know those early days were pretty hard. I would say though, you know, there are these little moments where you are like you do have a hundred customers, like that's real. And I think that for I think for us, really, one of the biggest things. Look, in the early days, I come from a sales background and I am a huge believer in the importance of sales at startups in the early stage. And like, there's a little rant I regularly give (laughs) about, I think one of the biggest problems in the Sydney startup ecosystem is the fact that like three of our best companies, certainly two of our best companies, Atlassian and Canva talk, especially Atlassian talks a lot about not having a sales team, which is bullshit. Because they do have a sales team, and they and they do have customer success reps who have targets and and have for a long time. Um, and Canva doesn't have a sales team, but unfortunately, most of us aren't Canva. Um, and also, Canvas considering getting a sales team, you know. And I think they're sort of looking to build that function out. And I think that there's this thing of a lot of founders who are already, you know, often a little averse to sales and a little scared of sales, or think sales is gross or whatever. But in the early days, like no one's going to sell it for you. Like you can't do 100%. clever marketing things. You've got to get out there and like call people and meet them and say, would you use this? And when you hear no, like, you know, 19 times out of 20, you're hopefully getting feedback from that no. And you're sort of figuring that out and you're slowly, you know, removing barriers that are there. And so I think on that side, you know, the early days was was at least for me and I was not the product guy. I'm very much the business side guy. It was very much driven around how do we make this work? And I will say that we made our first sales hire and it started to feel like you know, he and I both working on it, that we had a bit of a repeatable motion on that side. The unit economics were terrible. It didn't make sense,
0: but you could feel that there was something there. So was it the, the hundred customers that, you know, was that the milestone when you realized that this was actually going to work or when did you realize that you had a product that the market wanted? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like I, I, would say just on that
2: point. I mean, just I'd say like it's when you to that sales example, or, or I mean, to another one. I mean, I think like you know, product market fit is a wonderful concept, but I think it's one of those things that's like the, the way we sort of talk about it inside Quiller is like as gears in a car. Like most startups never get to first gear, but if you get to first gear, like that's cool, but that that's not useful. That that's really great for a little while, but you need to get to second, and then you need to get to third. And I would say, you know, I'd say maybe Quiller right now is in third, and we're sort of you know, working really hard to figure out how do we click into fourth. And I think that, you know, again, at that early stage with that, with that first sales rep and we had our first marketing hire around the same time, but all of a sudden we just like, it just started, it just started flowing through and you just, you know, we were getting, you know, I can't remember what it was, but like maybe, maybe it was 20 new customers a month or 30 or some sort of thing, but it just sort of felt like, Hey, this is happening on sort of a daily cadence and it was just the machine was starting to work and you could see that rhythm there. And I think also, to be honest, there was also a few times when like we, we did a few things like which I think like a lot of startups should do early on where someone was just like, you should just have a, have like a much, like have an enterprise price, like just price, have a really high price out there and just see if anyone buys it. And we started selling, you know, one of these a month to like quite large companies who'd previously maybe viewed us as being a bit small. And you were like, and there wasn't that much difference at the time, <laughs> but I think that I think there were a few things like that. Those little early signals that sort of showed actually this can this could move into like a into a really like meaningful zone.
1: Yeah, awesome. And so I guess today you're you're running a global business. There's customers all over the world, and how do you manage that? Do you have offices in outside of Sydney and lots of people? Like how big's that that team?
2: Yeah, so we're we're huge believers in remote. So we have so everybody who is in the way we structure our companies, everyone. Almost everyone who works on product is based in Sydney. So, you know, engineering, design, both founders are in Sydney. And we've got a bit of a sort of like a small sort of biz ops team as well, who sort of do systems and processes and, and all the odd jobs that come inside a startup. But all of our customer facing team, everybody in support, everybody in sales, everybody in customer success, they're all remote because our customers are everywhere around the world. And we've made a decision to have them all be remote. We could have hired people in Sydney. And look, you know, we may hire people in Sydney one day, you never know. but we've made a real push to have it be remote because remote's hard and it's hard to be disciplined enough to do remote really well. And um, we found that by kind of bifurcating the company a little bit into like everybody who's customer facing is remote and everybody who's, who's product facing is, is sort of largely. In, there, there are a few, you know, some, some in Melbourne and a few in India, um, but, but by and large, they're all in, in Sydney. You know, it sort of forced us to become quite good at it. And I think remote is so powerful if you can get to work well, but, you know, it's not easy to get it to work well. So look, you know, we've got a team in you know West Coast US because the time zone's great and you can get a lot of good talent there. But that team is like Sacramento, LA, San Fran, um, Portland, rural Oregon, um, rural Washington, like, you know, there are great people all around. And, and how, how, how did you go about finding those people? So look, to be honest, there's a few, I mean, good ways. We lucked out a little bit by early on we had someone, our head of support, Diana, who's just fantastic. And she'd been working remote for quite a while at a few different companies. Um, so Automatic is a well-known, the makers of WordPress are, a, you know, wonderful example. IO uh, is another good example. And, and so she'd had like a bit of experience in that side. And so we hired her. But there are so many great job boards out there. Like we work remotely is a classic one. If you post there, you'll be reposted at half a dozen other places around there. You can also do you know remote friendly ads on a bunch of other bigger well-known job boards. The glory and pain of remote in hiring is that you will get an absurd number of applications for every role you post, because everybody, not everybody, but there's a huge number of people who are really open to the idea of working remotely, and it is for the right person, it is a wonderful way of life. And you can live, you know, in a a sort of bit more rural setting, much cheaper to buy a house, have a much higher quality of life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like, which is great. But, you know, you posted, we posted a job recently and got 420 applications, which is. How do you screen them? Exactly. Right. (laughs) So like, I mean, honestly, like the first time we did it, we ended up using, we had to go on to, like, I was like, we were so, we were like, oh my God. So we had, we went on to recruit loop and just found, found a recruiter to sort of help us just to process it, you know, just to sort of cut through the noise. I think the thing that we found in the end is just once you know it a few times and you get your fingers burnt, you know, that's going to happen, especially if you've got a well-crafted job ad and you know, blah, 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 blah. And we just put higher barriers of entry. So We say, Hey, you know, you have to answer these, you know, three or four questions. You have to submit your CV or, or a cover letter as a quiller page, which means you've got to go to our website. You've got to use the product. You've got to play around. And like, that's a bit of a commitment. But it's also like, it's not that much of a commitment if you're actually yeah, interested absolutely. in working for us. And so I think making that high barrier, now you'll still get 200. But like, you know, but that's, that's still a, a worthwhile way to sort of start to filter a little bit. And those questions, you know, I think you also can be like, look, we know we want to hire someone in you
0: know, Europe. I think that's another good use case for Quiller.
2: It, it is, it is. We're actually, we're actually like doing oddly well in recruiting and job ads and things like that at the moment. And I think in a funny way, the more time I, we spend looking at recruiting, it's a, it's a sales process. You know, I mean, I think that anyway, there's, there are sort of interesting. Yes. Yeah, so we we are sort of thinking about, well, oh, we should invest a bit more in that or whatever. We feel the same way about half a dozen other. <laughs> it's
1: always the way. <laughs>
2: other segments. Yeah.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Parkhound, Australia's parking marketplace, to find a convenient parking space near your home or office. And in the early days, like how did you get to sort of the, the scale of the business and finding those customers? What were sort of the key things that you thought worked really well?
2: Yeah. I mean, for us, the... I wish I had a perfectly clean answer here. It's a complete mess of an answer. Like we, you know, you go through and you try things that that seem to work and and that seem to be, you know, get you there. I would say the things that we were able to figure out and make work for us quite well have been we have a we've got great word of mouth as a product because our product's very different. Like it, you're making your documents, this is web pages, and yes, they export to the PDF and blah blah. But like you know, we spend a lot of time on our product. We spend a lot of time on customer support and money on customer support so that we really invest in that, that sort of whole experience, which gives us, you know, a really high NPS. Like NPS is consistently 50 to 60. And that sort of does help sort of spread the word a little bit. A product is lightly viral. It's not, you know, it's not, you know, amazingly, amazingly viral, but it is, you know, when people use Quiller on the cheaper tiers, you know, the URL structure is, you know, zoom to or, or what have you. And I think that that was useful. You know, w- we did all the standard Like SAS playbook stuff of, you know, do some SEO stuff in our, in our industry, around documents, you've got to do a bunch of templates and whatever else. And that, that all works quite well. And yeah, you do some paid and whatnot, but there hasn't been a silver bullet. I'm a huge fan of, um, Ben Horowitz, um, has that book, the hard thing about hard things. And he has a great line. There are no silver bullets. There's just lead ones, but there's lots of them. And I would say just for us, you know, again, it was like we, we you know, hiring some marketing people, you start to turn on a channel, you, you sort of see if it works, you test it a bit. Okay, that seems to go pretty well. I would say again, you know, the sales motion for us in terms of high value deals has always been really valuable. You know, early on, you don't need, I'm really, you don't need to worry too much if it's a perfect unit economics, as long as you, you know, especially if you have a high gross margin product, like you, you feel confident you can figure that out longer term. Um, so you don't need your sales reps to be like hitting 3x, you know, cost initially, as long as they're hitting 2x, that's okay. And then you can sort of grow and build from there. But to be honest, I, I don't I don't have a perfectly clean answer. Like we're still going through that. And we, you know, we, we're lucky that we have, you know, we get many thousands of signups a month,
0: but yeah. Mark, can you share with us a hairy moment in, in your business journey? Um, we've all had them. And talk us through how you got out of it. Sure. I mean, I think there
2: are two that come to mind. And, and I think that um, they're probably both very standard, simple ones. So that this would be probably, unlike my other ones, a nice short answer for you. I think, so I think the first one was like a very simple one. In our early days, before we did that seed round with 0.9, you know, we were running low on cash. And, I, and uh, I've got to say, one of the nicest things that, that ever happened in the business was, was we were sort of like, we were going through and we were like, we didn't feel quite ready to raise. We just, we just sort of needed a, just a tiny bit more time. And I remember at the time, we were, we were burning like 30K a month. So it wasn't like we were burning some huge amount. We, we'd only raised this tiny little half million dollar round. And we called up, one of our investors was a family office in Sydney. We we called them up and it was like, oh look, we're thinking of doing a small bridging thing just for a few extra months. We're gonna maybe raise hundred and fifty grand, which to us at the time was the biggest deal in the universe, right? Like it was just like five months of runway and just we'd already tapped out our savings and you know, it was just sort of this this thing. And then like they were like, oh, okay, just give us a minute. They, they called back five minutes later and like, oh look, we'd like to take hundred and if no one else comes in, we'll take the whole one fifty. And also, you should think about raising more. (laughs) And the whole thing was done in two days. And I think it was truly one of those things that I think if you can, when you're early on in a startup, if you can have, there are some investors out there who do have deep pockets, who are comfortable for the long term, who aren't sort of, you know, I think, you know, something, a lot of angels out there are one and done. And a lot of VCs are like, there's a long, long process to go through there. And I think that was just an amazing experience. The other one in our early days was like, again, this is a while back, but we got hit with a patent. Uh, like a, a very frivolous patent uh, claim uh, from another sort of, sort of, you know, really spurious startup, actually an Australian startup. And it was this like completely bullshit claim. And we went through this whole stressful process of worrying about it and trying to speak to them and trying to like get them to remo- re- revoke it and whatever else. Cause like, it was just this this woman who had this defunct startup who was, had been conned into getting a patent for it in the first place, even though the patent was crap. And it was, just, it was one of those things where, again, it was like that thing of all you need to do in that situation is just actually go and speak to the professional who can help you on this side. And we went and spoke to a patent attorney. And, you know, you yeah, it costs you two grand to get them to write a letter. But as soon as you have that letter written, you go through it and you actually run through it, I think you know, it was just like we never heard from her again. It was a very straightforward process to sort of have that removed and sort of be set up going forward. You know, I think one of the nice things with a lot of these problems is that if you just go through the motions of doing the, the correct – the correct thing, but doing it early and, and sort of, instead sort of following the, like, a, a relatively known process, but just like not letting it sit, I actually think that they, those things can get sorted out quite quickly and easily.
0: Thanks for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> so looking back, was there something that you feel that you guys built or that you did that became a critical factor in, in your success to date?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd say, I mean, I would say that one of the big things we did invest a lot in was understanding our viral loops um, and, and how that works. And one of the, you know, if you have a product that does have some degree of virality, the more you can actually deeply understand that, the, the better. You know, for us, we were lucky. Point 0.9 had invested in Typeform. Typeform has an excellent um, viral loop. We got introduced to choose the head of growth there, a guy who's who's now left there, but a guy called Pedro Magrico, who's fantastic. And just, you know, went through, understood how their system worked, did a similar thing for some other play people who had some other sort of um, light virality, like the, the Unbounce team and others. And just sort of, you know, be, we're able to build out a model to sort of say, like, hey, actually, what, what actually impacts this? And, and for us, it's a very straightforward thing of how many people view, you know, quiller pages per month. Of those, we know a certain, you know, for, for every X number, let's say for every hundred views, we get one person who comes to the website, we know that of that particular channel, we have a much higher sign-up rate. So it's like 20% of those that channel signs up to be for a trial. And of that, it's a much higher rate of conversion to everything else from there on. Because it kind of makes sense, right? You've already seen the finished product. You already know what, what can happen. You've already been impressed by it. So this is sort of good flow through from there. And then it was just a, a thing of like, okay, well, how do you increase that? How do you improve those numbers on that side? And I think once we understood what drove that, there was – bunch of low-hanging fruit that allowed us to you know basically double our k-factor within a few months um, now it's been a real battle to get it sort of ticking up from there that was meaningful you know at the time we were doing about i think five to eight percent of our customers a month were coming in through viral and now it's close to 20 and that number stays stable every month so every month we get this free 20 percent of customers even as the rest of the business keeps growing as long as we have this customer base who use us and look i'd love that to be you know even larger and, and whatever else, but it is, I think that that was a, a nice thing that sort of, cause it kind of, the other sort of thing it sort of allows you to do, and this is the wonderful thing about SaaS is that when you figure out a, a mechanism like that, it allows you to, it's kind of like doing something to reduce your churn rate, you know, cause it, it, it impacts the actual, the value. Well, it turn sure impacts the value of the customer, but this one impacts the value of acquisition. Cause if you acquire a customer and you know that on average that customer is going to give you over a 12 month period, you know, X amount of another customer, it sort of can change how you think about spend. And I think that the relationship between, look, you know, and you don't want to be addicted to, to AdWords or whatever else, but it's sort of that's important early on when you sort of are building comfort with, with how you can grow
0: your business. So, talking about SaaS metrics, what KPIs have you guys always measured? What, you know, do you have a North Star that you, you follow?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, look, one of the problems with SaaS, is that there's a bajillion metrics and they're all <laughs> important. And you kind of need to know how they all interrelate and play together and whatever else. I'll tell you, so like we have a North Star internally, which is really just about the number of quiller pages that have been created, that have been viewed, that have got a view on it. So we, we consider like there's two things there. One is activation. So when you start for a trial, do you actually you know spend enough time creating a page? That you then share it with a third party who then views that because that view then triggers a view notification back to the person who created it. You get a Slack message or a text message or an email being like, hey, you know, your your document's been viewed. And that's that sort of first closing the value loop for us there. But then, you know, in an ongoing basis, we sort of track, you know, the health of our accounts by, hey, how many of these documents they're doing. And obviously with the viral part, there's a double sided benefit there because the more views each customer is creating, that's sort of again helping drive that viral engine. That said, you know, at the moment, I'm just obsessed with expansion <laughs> so so you know i think like when we said a net churn like we had a big thing that made a big impact on our churn rate recently and it, for, for our most important most valued cohort like our net churn is in a really great place now and we're just getting started on expansion there's a there's a chance for us to get that to an even better place which would be very exciting yeah awesome excellent
1: In the time and the journey of, of quiller and before what's what's the best piece of advice that you've had from someone
2: this is this is a hard one and if i'm going to
1: give a bit of a weird answer here.
2: I actually think the best thing that, that happened to us in terms of this sort of general space was my co-founder Dylan is a very, very thoughtful guy, quite sort of deep and philosophical at times, which can occasionally be mildly annoying, but is usually deeply wonderful. And actually Dylan sort of relatively early on in Quiller wrote these principles for our company. And he has a big sort of thing about culture is a hard thing to define to really nail down because culture changes with people, you know, the different people you hire, you, we've hired some people recently, some of which, you know, very colorful and fun and they kind of, you know, change the culture a tiny bit, you know, it's this eternally morphing thing that you I think have to be very mindful and thoughtful about. But the nice thing about principles is that you actually can nail them down and stick to them. And so for us, Dylan wrote down these three principles, which were undeniable bestness, which is, you know, we believe as a company that the way we're going to win is by being the best at what we do it's not through short hacks or clever tricks or any other bullshit like that it's about you know sincerely trying to do the best principle number two is velocity with valor which is like the only thing you have as a startup is sort of speed and, and time and agility and you have to use that and those two are wonderfully immediately at odds with each other and there's real tension there and like you know you need to move fast and we're not move fast and break things you know velocity with valor i think speaks pretty clearly on that side but I think, you know, undeniable bestness and velocity with valor. And then our third principle is, is clarity through collaboration, which is to say that, you know, Mike, you don't know everything. I certainly don't know everything. Steve doesn't know everything. But if we work together on a particular problem and you assume there is a platonic ideal of like the perfect answer to that problem, we're going to get a lot closer if we can all share the knowledge that we have on that side and all tussle with each other's ideas. And I think that's also the, sort of the thing in between there. And to be honest, it's been unbelievable how much of an impact it's had in, in the company. And it also is one of those things that, It kind of allows you not to have a, um, you don't need to have like a a bunch of processes and rules on certain things when you can just say like, does this line up with our principles? And if it doesn't, then that's a problem. So I think in a funny way, that's probably the best thing that's happened
1: to us. yeah awesome. If you were to give advice to a founder that was starting out today, what would be the the thing the number one thing you would tell them is to think about when they're building their startup?
2: Look, this is not new. Everyone says this talk to your customers just again and again we're doing a big thing right now where we're spending a lot of time doing customer interviews and every single person, every single founder who does customer interviews is always like, why didn't I why didn't I do more customer interviews?' <laughs> like, why don't I spend more time talking? because you just it's just the insights you get from it, the understanding of your business, that the weird things they say that trigger this thought that leads you to connect two dots that had previously been a bit murky, like just all this sort of stuff that comes out of it. And I'd say like in the early days, especially talking to customers or potential customers or people you would like to one day be customers or whatever is just the best. And I think, you know, my, my little sales rant from earlier sort of, you know, uh, leans into that as well. But I would say that like, That is just talk to your customers. You know, I think that that's such a powerful, powerful thing that, you know, I say that and I'm feeling guilty because I'm probably not doing it enough.
1: I think it's uh, as you get bigger and bigger, it becomes harder and harder, but it's like so important to stay close to your customer and
0: knowing what they're experiencing. Yeah. Mark, what's next for Quilla? You've been on an amazing journey, you're building a great business. What's the future look like? You know, what's the business look like in the next five years or so?
2: I'll give you the short. The shorter term answer, because that's an easy one for me to figure out and I'll, I'll talk the longer term vision as well. But the short term answer is we're in this interesting phase now where we're about 40 people and you guys know this, like there's that, there's that zone when you're 10 people, you don't need any management, you don't need, any, you don't need too much structure, everyone reports into the founders, it's all, it's all fine, it's all hunky-dory and great and good vibes. Then somewhere around about 25, I think, I don't know, it sort of starts to change and you're like, oh, like we kind of need leaders and we need some degree of managers and and we need to like start professionalizing functions that it's been kind of cool for marketing to be one guy in the corner doing whatever. Like we sort of need to start like, how do we build that out? And that's like really hard. And hiring great people and having them align with your culture and 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 sort of, you know, being able to build those teams and actually properly hand over things from the founder and all that sort of stuff is, is an interesting challenge that we're going through. As far as the next five years goes, I mean, I, I think look, we're going to build an absolutely gigantic business that's going to you know just crush all comers. But product wise, the thing that we think about is documents. Documents are uh, file-based documents. Really, have always been islands. You know, there's there's this sort of little island of content. It doesn't pull data into it. Doesn't push data out of it. Doesn't speak to other systems. Doesn't do anything interesting. Often documents live in a row, like in a sequence. Um, but there's no way to sequence them well. There's no sort of process or workflows. Like if you have a proposal and it gets accepted when you want to send them an invoice, well, all the information that you need to send them is in the proposal. <laughs> like that should be like why why can't those two things speak together? And and I think there's a whole lot of interesting things that are, that are in that space. Um, as well as, you know, there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff that's happening. In the design and interactivity of, of documents there's a bunch of interesting startups in this space we look at you know people on the internal side such as like Airtable and, and notion and coda who do fantastic work at like you know this doc none of that stuff is designed to be printed you know because they're all you know they're all tools that you sort of you know, think to yourself well how am i going to plug zapier into this which is not something you would ever think of doing with a google doc or a, or a microsoft word and i think that There's, to be honest, there's a huge amount of like a revolution that's going to happen in this space and there's a huge market that, you know, the Microsoft monopoly and Adobe have sort of been sitting on in a sort of very antiquated, crappy way for far too long. So we're very, very excited about that. That being said, it's still very early in this industry and the things that we think that matter are sort of somewhat yet to be proven in that sort of longer game. So I think it's very early days yet.
0: Well, thanks for joining us on Founders On Air today, Mark. It's been fascinating hearing your story and um, thanks for sharing it with all the founders out there listening today. Over the coming weeks, we've got uh, some terrific founders who have real and actionable insights to share. And don't forget to subscribe to Founders On Air. You can go to our website, foundersonair.com and subscribe on the Apple podcast or Spotify. Be sure to send us your questions and feedback. Um, It's bye for now from Founders On Air. You've been listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum, a podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.